0: This is a CNIB Foundation podcast. We now have Dr. Mahadeo Sukai in the studio. Mahadeo, who holds a doctorate in medical biophysics, is CNIB's head of research and chief accessibility officer. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Sukai. Thank you for joining the conversation. Thank
1: you very much for having me, James.
0: Before we begin our science fiction discussion, I would ask you, as I have asked previous guests, to tell us about your background, your work, and also your relationship with CNIB.
1: All right. Well, um, so I I am a client. Um, I'm also, uh, as you mentioned, CNIB's head of research and chief accessibility officer. Uh, I run two departments here, uh, the National Research Program within CNIB, as well as uh, the organization's efforts to uh, continue to improve on its accessibility and inclusion uh, for its staff and its volunteers. So, so two very exciting roles, uh, two very important roles, uh, two very demanding and, and requiring a lot of hard work roles. So it, it's, it's a real pleasure to be able to take some time out this morning to come and chat. A little bit about my background. So I wasn't born in these parts. I was actually born in the Caribbean. Um, I've wanted to be a scientist since I was about four. Um, And two things really did it for me. One was astronomy. um, And the second was science fiction. Uh, And so my my relationship with science fiction goes back a long, long way, as does my relationship with the hard sciences. Um, And I actually originally wanted to be an astronomer, Uh, figured out that astronomy today was more computer science, figured out that I didn't like computer science because I didn't find it as attractive as astronomy. And so I actually... Jumped ship, so to speak, went from uh, astronomy and astrophysics into molecular biology, and, and that's where I ended up doing my PhD. I was the first person to do a PhD in those disciplines, I think, anywhere on the planet um, at the time that I got my doctorate degree. So, so it, was, it was an interesting experience, but, but it, was, it was the love of science that drew me into that space in the first place um, and science fiction that brought me there.
0: Yes, you know, you know, this is very interesting. I'm going, to, I'm going to quote Carl Sagan from 1978. And he said, Many scientists deeply involved in the exploration of the solar system, myself among them, were first turned in that direction by science fiction. And the fact that some of that science fiction was not of the highest quality is irrelevant. Ten-year-olds do not read the scientific literature. As a scientist, how has science fiction inspired you?
1: <laughs> Ten-year-olds can read the scientific literature. It, it depends on how much of a prodigy you are. All you have to do is witness Sheldon Cooper. Um, now, I didn't actually get access to the scientific literature until I was 15, but that's a different story. Um, so, so you know, I, I think it's an interesting point. Um, one of my favorite science fiction authors was Isaac Asimov. Um, and... And Isaac Asimov wrote a series of young adult science fiction novels called Lucky Star and whatever, you know, The Moons of Jupiter, The Rings of Saturn, you you name a part of the solar system, and, and he wrote about it. Um, and it was his way to teach astronomy to, um, to a young adult audience in an adventure kind of setting. But he was basing it on this on the uh, science from the 1950s, which is gloriously and spectacularly wrong in in some regards. Right. In the 1950s, we thought that Mercury held one face to the sun, for example, Um, we thought that the atmosphere of Venus hid a world girdling ocean that was hot, but not as hot as the surface of Venus is known to be today. You know, the the difference between 40 degrees Celsius and 450 degrees Celsius is rather astronomical, if you'll pardon the pun. you know the number of moons of Jupiter, the existence of Jupiter's own ring system um the 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 surface conditions of Saturn's moon Titan, all of these things were things that in the nineteen fifties we ne- we thought we knew something about, but in reality we didn't and so you go back and you look at some of that older work and and the science is just hilariously wrong, right Isaac Asimov is also rather renowned for getting computers wrong um he he postulated that we would as a species take our scientific endeavors more in the direction of of human form robots than computers and so he never predicted the power of computers and he never predicted the accelerating um, pace of of computer development and computer evolution and so he missed the boat on that right does it invalidate anything that he wrote absolutely not they're they're fantastic books you just you, you understand that they're there to fire the imagination they're not there to be scientific lessons in and of themselves when they are that's fantastic but but they're not intended for that purpose they're intended to be extrapolations of what we know at the time that we know them and so some of the some of the literature goes out of date real fast
0: it does and at that point is it just
1: reclassified i wonder as quaint or suddenly it becomes fantasy it depends on on um how much of it is still in print i suppose um, as a kid growing up, Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke were my two favorite authors, um, both of them well known for world building. Neither one really well known for characterization, but that was the way that they wrote. They And, and you know, Arthur C. Clarke's first novel that I read was actually Songs of Distant Earth, which he published in... 87, I want to say, maybe a little bit earlier than that. But Songs of Distant Earth was a fantastic novel. Very underrated. A lot of people don't, don't even list it in, in Clark's top five, let alone top ten. Um, but I do think it was, it was a fantastic, fantastic novel. Excellent world building. But the characters, they're not finely drawn right and and that was that was the style of the time and so you know I think back to those kinds of novels and I, I think that today they might be quaint they wouldn't be fantasy they would be quaint um because they started being grounded in science fiction and, and and started being grounded in what we knew at the time because the authors took pride in in doing that um and in in postulating fairly logical extrapolations of, of where we wanted to go and where we would go but you know that it so we guess wrong that's okay it happens
0: but sometimes they got it spectacularly right yes so let's talk a little bit about the predictive power of science fiction hg uh, wells predicted uh, air warfare i believe he was the first to use the term atomic bomb yep uh jules verne even predicted weightlessness yeah in in space travel yeah uh, could we talk a little bit about that
1: well, I, I think the best example of, of something like that is is the Geosynchronous satellite uh, space elevators. Um, in fact, Arthur C. Clarke, coming back to him, Fountains of Paradise from 1978, the whole concept of a space elevator... Um was something that he wrote about, and at that point it was highly theoretical it It's still theoretical today but but the the existence of something like that is is widely attributed not just to the engineers and scientists who speculated on how to do it, but also to the science fiction author who popularized it. I think today we we get a little bit we get a little bit better at this sort of thing um I would think because um the the pace of change of knowledge continues to accelerate. But in some ways, it, it's become a little bit easier to envision what that world of 20 or 30 or 40 years from now is going to look like. Um, the interesting thing about that is is how much of that world is dystopian versus not. Um, and there's a whole subgenre of science fiction that, that's all about the dystopia, which I honestly have not gotten into. I find it too depressing. Um, but there's there's also a lot of good stuff that's out there that that's near future, even farther future that is that is still highly speculative, um that I, I think are messages of hope and and stories of, um speculation, extrapolation and and the human condition that that's what science fiction is really supposed to be. Any literature is is a mirror of the human condition, but science fiction does a glorious job of couching that in um in, this kind of setting, where that doesn't seem to be the point. Uh,
0: what what period of science fiction's long history do you think was the most vibrant and productive?
1: You know that is an excellent question, James. Um, I I have my favorites, right? And and you know the the fifties and sixties. Never mind the never mind the pulp magazines, but the fifties and sixties were really where. Uh, some of these folks started to produce novel-length stories, and, and that was the era of, of um, Asimov, Bradbury, and uh, Clark, the A, B, and C of, of science fiction. Um, you know, throw Douglas Adams in there, throw Robert Heinlein in there. Um, and, and you had quite a number of individuals who who wrote really well, who told amazing stories of, of hope. I mean, think about the Foundation Saga. You know, a, something that was written at the height of World War Two, postulated, um, you know, human civilization 20,000 years in the future um, and what it would take to actually come out of a, of an interregnum of a dark age that instead of being 30,000 years was only predicted to be a 1,000 years if it was handled properly, right? Um you know, you think about something like that, you think about 2001, A Space Odyssey, which in itself is a story of, of hope and aspiration, that, that there is more to the human condition um, than, than who and what we are biologically today. Um, and, you know, there's, you, you've, got, you've got that, that era um, in the 50s and 60s and even into the 70s. Arthur C. Clarke did Rendezvous with Rama in the early 70s. Um, but then you've also got some really good authors who've come up in the past – Twenty years or so, uh, twenty-five years. Kim Stanley Robinson's a good example with the Mars trilogy. Robert J. Sawyer, who lives in Mississauga, is another good example. Um, with um, with oh, let's see, Wake, Watch, and Wonder from the late two thousands hominids, humans, and hybrids from about five or six years before that. His Neanderthal Parallax trilogy, that one was really good. Terminal Experiment was the first one of his that I read that was absolutely spectacular, and I I always have a soft spot for frameshift, if only because its protagonist is a geneticist with a disability, and so that actually does hit home a little bit. Um, So, you know, I think about I think about Robinson, I think about Sawyer, I think about Robert Charles Wilson, who's another good example of, of really hard science fiction. Um, I think about, oh, let's see, who else would come to mind from that from that era? Um, you know, some of the stuff that Greg Bear's put out is also actually quite good, right? Very speculative, very hard SF, very grounded in the people. I mean, the difference between the authors of, of the 90s and and Two thousands is that they uh, versus the ones in the fifties and sixties. They put a lot more effort in characterization. They put a lot more effort in making sure that we could relate to the protagonists, um, and in relating to the protagonists, relate to the world being built around them.
0: Do the in your opinion do the uh, contemporary authors get the science right generally?
1: Some try. Mm -hmm. Um, Sawyer, for example, does a great job trying and extrapolating based on uh on sort of cutting edge theories. I mean, I, I think back to Frameshift and and he made a few suggestions in there about um about you know the drivers of human evolution well before epigenetics was actually a discipline. Um and you know not that I expect them to be right, but but he he did think fairly logically about it. And and you know there's there's um something's called something that's called the apologist's creed um which you often find in in a religious context, but it applies to anybody who writes anybody who communicates either orally or or in writing um is the message you're trying to deliver coherent consistent and relevant um and I think back to the best of the science fiction authors and and you know as as long as their world building makes sense as long as the science that they're they're building is 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 reasonably accurate within the realm of what they're trying to do as, as speculative writers. And as long as the 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 world is coherent, the world is consistent, the story is relevant, it's going to be a good story and they're usually going to be good writers.
0: Now you mentioned a little earlier that you haven't gotten into a dystopia does um, dystopian literature. Not my thing. <laughs> but, I mean, but.
1: You know what? George Orwell's 1984. <laughs> exactly. Great, wonderful, fantastic piece yeah. of writing. Mm-hmm. Read it in school. Mm. Um, you mm. know, it, it, I, don't, I don't gravitate to word that literature. I wouldn't go and and find it in a library shelf, or I wouldn't go and hunt for it in indigo or chapters, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I'll read it if it's put in front of me, and and if it's good, and if it holds my attention, that's absolutely fantastic.
0: All right, so this could be a difficult question for you then. I hope it is. Uh, If you had to write a biological dystopia,
1: what would it be? You know, that's that's an interesting question. Um, I... I, (sighs) I think about what we know today um, about viruses, I think about what we know today about the human genome um, and how many millions of ways that that uh, genetic technology could be, if you'll pardon the pun, manipulated mm. <laughs> uh, for, for the wrong purpose. Um, and, and my biological dystopia would probably start there. You know, if, if, if we if we engineer ourselves, at what point do we engineer the plasticity and the adapti- and the adaptability and the creativity as a species out of ourselves? Mm-hmm. And you know, where where do we go with that? And there there's some good stories that, that have gone down that particular road before. Um, you know, Brave New World comes to mind as an example. Um, Gattaca as, as a movie comes to mind as an example. Um, I, I think, though, that, that, you know, given how much we talk about designer babies and given how much genetic testing is, is a um, pervasive fact of life today, um, you know, thinking about logical consequences of where, where that might go, I think that would be where I'd start.
0: Yes. Well, there is the eugenics nightmare. Mm, there is. There is also the plague nightmare.
1: Mm-hmm. That, too. Or the eugenic plague nightmare. Mm-hmm.
0: So if you had to write about a plague, where where what
1: are our vulnerabilities? Um, you know, it's actually really funny. I read a series of novels by a science fiction author named A.G. Riddle um, that he published mm-hmm. recently. And, and I only recently got into him, and he writes quite well. He writes science fiction thrillers, which is... Also a fascinating subgenre, um, you know, a marriage of Tom Clancy with like Michael Crichton, um, and and so you know I, I think about Plague Nightmares and I think about I think about the last scene from Rise of the Planet of the Apes, the movie mm. from two thousand and eleven, um, where one infected passenger, um, I believe he was played by Michael Shanks, Doctor Daniel Jackson of of Stargate SG one fame, um, and and he. Traveled while infected with the the virus from Caesar Um, and then he infected others while traveling and they infected others and they infected others. We live in such a connected world. Air travel is so common like a a plague that starts in London, England, is ridiculously easy to spread across the oceans today because we're in such a connected world.
0: Mm hmm. And, of course, the the granddaddy of of that would, I guess, be Crichton's Andromeda Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that is a possibility as well, is it not? So that that scenario? Um, Perhaps a remote one? Plague from outer space? Mm Mm-hmm. Could something survive, for example, on a meteor?
1: Ah uh, yes, in fact, there are some theories of of um, of evolution of life here on Earth that suggest that that the building blocks of life came from um, impacts in the early days of the solar system. So so things could survive on a meteor. There's there there is a there's a reasonably credible theory of of panspermia, the idea that that. Um, you know, organic molecules are, of course, going to be stable in certain kinds of um, of asteroids or certain kinds of comets, and they can float between the stars and then one day picked up by somebody else's gravity well, and, and there you have it, right? So, um, conceivably, you know, the, the idea is, is possible. If if you actually were able to demonstrate um, that something as complex as a virus could survive even a simple virus, right? Like, like you know... Well, all the viruses here, I don't want to use the word simple because they've had four billion years of evolution too. Um, but, you know, you think about a very simple self-replicating virus, one one that just basically had the machinery to self-replicate and that was it. Um, and if, if that could survive, if you could actually prove that something as complex as that could survive near absolute zero and be transported even from Mars to Earth, then yes, absolutely. I, I would say that, that you actually have even sounder scientific basis. Today, it's a bit of an extrapolation, um, but it, it, is, it is at that edge of possible that, that makes you actually go,
0: hmm. And there is always, always the danger of wandering asteroids. Apparently, one is going to pass quite close to us at this
1: point. Uh, wandering asteroids are, are – are, are, <laughs> they're, they're the wonderful sort of fodder for disaster science fiction, right? Mm. Um, you know, stories of, of human sacrifice and, and survival against a wandering asteroid. Mm. Arthur C. Clarke again, The Hammer of God mm. from 1992. That one actually was optioned and, and got um, Hollywooded into Deep Impact. Um, and so Deep Impact was very, very loosely based on Hammer of God. Um, and Deep Impact in 98 was the better of the two um, space disaster movies because Armageddon was the other one. Um, but Deep Impact got the science right. Armageddon, less so.
0: <laughs> yes, but, but actually there, there is uh, one the larger than the Shard in London that apparently is going to be passing quite close to us shortly. I just read about that this morning.
1: I haven't seen that piece as yet. Um, it does it does speak to the need for something else that that um, Arthur C. Clarke actually speculated and, and perversely enough got right. Um, but he got right because people were inspired by his writing to do it. Um, he had in his in his uh, Rama series of books, he had actually speculated about a deep space tracking network um, that was there to capture, identify, at the very least, um, you know, near-Earth-passing asteroids. Um, And so that's something that we've actually made a reality now, um, and it is still, I would say, in a little bit in its infancy. The the, the issue is, you know, you want to detect something that's tiny and close, but it's also dark and tiny and close. And so how you actually pick that up... um, with the technologies that we have on hand. So, so you know, there's there's lots of great stories in that space as well. Um, the Lady Astronaut series, oh, I forget her name, but she wrote a couple of books in, in this um, alternate reality um, kind of space where she postulated that uh, a meteorite took out Washington, D.C. in 1953. Um, and what would that do to the space program? Um and that, that made for a fascinating read last summer, actually, um when the two the first two books in that series came out. Um SM Sterling had another really good one, the Peshawar Lancers, that came out in the early two thousands, um, where he postulated a um a meteor fall taking out north yeah, North Europe actually. It took out everything from London to Moscow. Um and so it annihilated the the European empires of the day. Um and human civilization had to reform in the absence of Great Britain and in the absence of Russia and in the absence of Germany and so on. Um, and so it really depends on where you start with your speculation um, and, and what that starting point looked like and, and how you evolved that starting point as an author. Um, and can you evolve it in a believable way um, so that your readers will go on that journey with you?
0: you know, there's there's another possible dystopia that's not so speculative, and that would be a climate dystopia. Mm-hmm. Has anyone yeah. ever written about that?
1: Kim Stanley Robinson did. Uh, he's got a trilogy <clears throat> about that. Um, that one was published in, I think, late 2000s or, or early 2010s. Um, he's written about that for sure. Uh, it's formed the background of part of Ben Bova's works. Um, there's a few authors who sort of speculated about global warming and the impacts of global warming, and um, another good one that I can think of in in the space of a climate dystopia would be Flood by Stephen Baxter. Um, Baxter's a very good hard science fiction author, um, based in the United Kingdom. He's an aerospace engineer by training, actually. Um, and he collaborated with Arthur C. Clarke on on quite a few novels. Um, when Arthur C. Clarke was getting on in years, um, and I've I've actually grown to enjoy Baxter's work because he does phenomenally good, really hard science fiction with with very good sort of um, you know um, predictions or speculations that are built in that are so close to so close to where we are today that you know it's not hard to envision how we go from here to there.
0: Can you recall the very first book or science fiction story that got you hooked?
1: Um, That might have been Rendezvous with Rama by Arthur C. Um, Clarke. It might have been that one. Uh, It might have been one of the foundation books by Isaac Asimov. Um, I don't remember which of those two took the prize, Um, But, I mean, I started reading early, and I started reading often, and if I could get my hands on something, then it would be within that space, um, and I'd be reading it. So Actually, one of three now that I think about it, A Childhood's End, Rendezvous with Rama, both by Arthur C. C. Clarke, um, and one of the robot novels by Isaac Asimov, which ties into his Foundation series. So it was one of those three books that, that I read that got me hooked in science fiction first.
0: Is there, is there one book in particular or story you keep revisiting, you go back to?
1: <laughs> um, Frameshift by Robert J. Sawyer is one that I will reread. Um, not not super often, but it's always one of those w- that when I take it out and I read it again, it, it hooks me from word one all the way out to word 100,000 and change. Um, and, and so... Again, I do identify with the protagonist a fair bit. Um, That might be one reason why. Um, And so I I would say that. I have reread the – I've reread Rendezvous with Rama quite a few times. Not recently, but I have. Um, I've also reread – let's see. Who else have I reread? Orson Scott Cards, Ender's Game. I've reread four or five times since I first read it. Um, military science fiction, sort of the prototype of military science fiction, um, with kids, um, you know, just because I was a bit of a child prodigy, anything that, that had boy geniuses or girl geniuses was attractive to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, so there's, there's a few that I will reread. Um, you know, my, my love of books escalated very quickly into a library that outgrew the bookshelf. Um, and I always used to have fights with my parents and then with my siblings um, when I lived at home about the the volume of books within the library, ninety percent of which were science fiction at that point in time. Um, and uh and so the the usual comment that that would come was, well, you've read it once. You've got such a good memory. Seriously you're gonna read it again? And my answer is yes. And the, the question always came back, but why you remember? And I said, that's not the point. The point is to feel it again, to experience it again. And yes, I remember all the words and I remember the story beats and I remember what happens when and, and that sort of thing. But, but reading the book allows for a visceral experience that just remembering the story does not.
0: If you had one book to recommend to our listeners... What would it be, and why? One book, just one. If it's Frame Shift or Cards book, is it just one recommendation? Oh, geez, that's a hard question, James. Well, I, I'm not here to ask you easy questions. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'd recommend a library, um,
1: but you know what? Look, I'm I'm going to go with Canadian content, and I'm going to go with um, I'm going to go with Frame Shift. Read that one.
0: OK, why should they?
1: Because I liked it. And why
0: did you like it? Well, so you identified. I know
1: I, I identified <clears throat> a, it, it, it was a book that was science fiction in my field <laughs> mm-hmm. um, at the time when I was setting out in my field, which which I thought was was very resonant. Um, it does have a very good story so uh,
0: what was the basic story the the,
1: the basic story behind frameshift was um, was you had this geneticist who spoiler alert was diagnosed with Huntington's um, and so he was interested in understanding human evolution Um And while he was doing his work on human evolution, he also got caught up in this mystery um, about a Nazi concentration camp from World War II um, and how genetics tied into both the mystery of human evolution and the mystery of that Nazi concentration camp. And so it touched on all sorts of really interesting things. genetic testing and genetic predisposition in the context of insurance and personal health. It touched on evolution. It touched on genetics. It touched on, um, on survivorship post-World War II and the Holocaust. All sorts, of, all sorts of themes got wrapped in there in a very cohesive way, and it was, it was a very well-put-together book.
0: Hmm. This whole idea of, of, of controlling our own evolution... Was one of the possible um, um, dystopias we discussed, yeah a la Gattaca, for yeah, example, yeah,
1: yeah. before we can control, I, I think first we understand. and Sawyer didn't didn't predict controlling. he He speculated about understanding, which was a very interesting way of going about it mm-hmm. because it turns that entire trope on its ear, right? it doesn't it doesn't assume we know more than we actually know. Um, but it, it, does, it does make the assumption of, well, what would we do in order to figure it out and what would that look like?
0: and who would make the ju- uh, choices of what are the desirable characteristics <laughs> for a, for a human you see that
1: <laughs> n- n- i'm a geneticist right and and that that's where i can actually come back here and and you know soapbox at length about genetically modified organisms and and who has the right to choose and what kind of choice is worth it and we can actually get into all sorts of fun disability politics about that but that's not this conversation yeah um there's there's some great fodder for science fiction in that kind of conversation mind you but that's not this conversation Mm -hmm. um you know the interesting thing about who should choose i think everyone who is who is educated enough about the the benefits the risks the challenges the opportunities can make that choice um what that means as a species going forward i don't know but I, I I do think that that choices like that aren't aren't necessarily ones that ought to be leveraged on a human being. They're are choices that each of us get to make for ourselves at that point in time where we're actually talking about you know the future of our own genetic lines.
0: Right. Those are moral choices. Those are moral choices. And uh, our technology can sometimes outstrip our capacity to make ethical choices.
1: Somebody somebody actually said this. Um, and I forget where it showed up in which science fiction novel, um, technology is neutral. Exactly. But what we do with the technology is a moral choice. That's not neutral, but that's that's a human choice. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not a technological choice. If if we didn't want evil to be in the world because of technology, we shouldn't be explorers. We shouldn't seek to understand. And And all of us who... Our scientists seek to understand. Um, And what we do with that understanding as a species, that's a different conversation. But in the beginning, we all seek to understand.
0: Yes, and technology from its most primitive to its most sophisticated
1: can always be misused. That's correct. Absolutely. Everything can be misused. Smartphone can be misused, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so, you know, the level of care that goes into... Um, that goes into use of technology or or use of a principle, um, because it doesn't have to just be technology. It could just be a scientific principle. The the level of care that goes into that um, and what we do about that, I I think that's where science and society need to have conversations. And those are conversations that science fiction gets to drive. Mm -hmm. Um, Once we take science fiction away from, hey, this is just smutty fun, right? Right. Um, Because for goodness knows how long science fiction had this aura, of being B-movie smutty fun, right? My parents used to say to me all the time, why would you read that? It's not real.
0: Mm, not yet.
1: Not yet, <laughs> that was one of my comebacks. Um, and another one of my comebacks is, does it matter that it's not real? Mm-hmm. Right? Because again, it, it, it's about the story, it's about the understanding. And and so, um, you know, science fiction gives us a lens to ask those kinds of questions and, and think about things um, in, in those kinds of ways. It's not just about um, you know, the spaceships or or the um, genetically engineered dystopia or the colonies on Mars, mm-hmm. right? Um, or the robots or the androids, um, or the warp drive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, or well, I mean, Star Wars is space fantasy, so I'm not gonna include that in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it, it it's it's really about how we think about the choices that the characters are experiencing, how we think about the morality of the situation that they face. What would we do in their space? And again, it's about that lens, that mirror that's being held up to humanity, to the social condition, to the human condition, through a world that doesn't exist yet.
0: And often it makes us consider what it means to be human. That's exactly right. Yeah, and And science fiction anticipates those moral choices we might have to make at some point in our history. Also exactly right. Yeah. So why do you think this genre, apart from what we've said about it now, is so wildly popular, you know, so universal?
1: Um, You know what? Part of it is escapism. If, If you're going to go someplace in your imagination, why not go to someplace that looks nothing like the world that we live in today? Right, that's part of it. um there is there's is another part of it where today's readers of science fiction may have come to science fiction not through the Giants of the past or the Giants of the present. They may have come to science fiction through Iron Man mm-hmm. right, or through Thor mm. or through you know Batman or or Superman or a spider man or or somebody within Comics Canon, yes, right. And, I mean, the Marvel movies have made how many billions of dollars? 23 movies? Oh, 11 years? Yes. Right? There, there's, Monstrous. There, Monstrous, yeah. Yes. There's there's a whole army of fans who've come to science fiction mm. because of Robert D- Downey Jr.'s portrayal of Iron Man. Yeah. Right? Um, you've also got a whole legion of fans who've come to science fiction through Star Wars, only to realize that Star Wars is not science fiction. Um, and, and you've got even more legions of fans... I think because Star Trek is more popular than Star Wars, they have thrown down the gauntlet. Yeah. Um, okay. You know. I, All I, right. I, All right, Sheldon. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, you're also going to have a lot of people who come to, um, who come to science fiction from something like Star Trek. Yeah. Right. And in fact, there are a lot of scientists who, as we were talking about in the very beginning, James, they became scientists because of science fiction. They also became scientists because of Star Trek.
0: Yeah. Right. Well, I, I believe Lawrence Krauss was uh, one of the technical advisors on on Star Trek. Was he not? Yeah. Yeah. He wrote a book called The Science of Star Trek. Yep. Exactly yeah. Exactly right. And Carl Sagan, one of the series of books he loved as a kid, uh, was the Tarzan series. Edgar yep. Rice Burroughs. Yep. You know. Yeah. So as Absolutely. you say, you could you could start at any point in the compass, um, and and come to science that way. That's right.
1: Yeah. That's exactly it. And I think that that's that's one of the enduring aspects of of science fiction. And in some ways, you know, put the speculative science to one side. Science fiction is timeless in a way that contemporary fiction isn't always. Mm -hmm. Right. Because contemporary fiction is very grounded in the world in which we live. Yes. But when that world changes, because that world has changed tremendously even in the last 10 or 15 years, when that world changes... Then the fiction becomes dated, and, and it's no longer contemporary. It becomes historical. In gigantic hair yes. quotes. Yeah,
0: yeah, indeed it does. Um. Finally, you know, what do you think you will read next?
1: Uh, has a new work caught your attention? Um, I was on vacation a month, two months ago, and I actually burned through A. G. Riddle's novels, all of them, in the space of like two weeks. It was incredible. I hadn't done something like that in a long time. Um, I'm I'm eagerly anticipating uh Robert J Sawyer's 24th novel which I think is supposed to come out next year. Um rumor has it he's just submitted it to the publisher. Um you know, I'm 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 looking forward to I'm looking forward to the nexts in a bunch of authors that I follow um rather eagerly. Um you know, if, if something catches my eye, um then, you know, it, it becomes one of those spur of the moment I'm going to pick it up and see what's next sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so so I eagerly anticipate Stephen Baxter's next. Um, I eagerly anticipate Kim Stanley Robinson's next. Robert J. Robert J. Sawyer's next. There, there's a few of them that I keep my eye on. Um, and you know, in in the meantime, there's always old favorites to revisit.
0: Yes, as we
1: discussed, exactly.
0: Al- always the old standbys. Exactly. Yeah. And you, in a way, you relive your youth as well when you. Go you back. do. <laughs> you do absolutely. You do. Well, oh, one, one thing. Have you read
1: Olaf Stapleton? Um, heard of him. I've not had the chance to read any of his work as yet. I know he's got <laughs> quite a few pieces that were inspirational to the people that we've been talking about. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, I read many years ago Last and First Men in which he, he projects two uh, two billion years of human evolution and goes right. through 18 species, human species. Yeah. Uh, that I, I really found fascinating. As I have this conversation, thank you very much for being with us. It was it was a pleasure. Thank you very much, James. Fascinating. Take care. Thank As you. As well. Thank bye you. Bye-bye. For more CNIB Foundation podcasts, visit CNIB.ca slash podcasts.